I suppose. I can, I can wait. <laughs> no, don't wait. Okay. Stop waiting. Hello, gentle <laughs> listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch, the podcast in which Ethan and one other nerd... Dang it. I was trying to <laughs> other like, nerd. <laughs> not be, the, be a nerd, but then I said other and... You're a nerd. Well, you said urine, so who's the nerd now? You. You're the one talking about astronomy. I said urine, not Uranus. <laughs> now you did. Oh, this was, this was the podcast where I was going to go into the intellectual parts of the book. Oh. Well, but as they say in the Light Brigade, onward, onward, and upward. Um, Ours is not to wonder why. Yeah, that's what they actually say. Uh, sometimes I confuse Alfred Lord Tennyson and uh, Star Trek. Um, Pretty much the same. <laughs> <laughs> both, both jingoistic, imperialistic uh, colonizers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow, now I want to have that discussion. Anyway, this is the podcast where two nerds, and sometimes others, talk about books, but not about scotch. I'm your host, Ethan Bartlett, and this is my guest, Michael Lilienthal. I'm his guest, Michael Lilienthal. Yeah. Uh, can I... Can't I can't even yeah. can't even argue. Yeah, what do you say? Yeah. Right. Anyway. So, as you know, after our hiatus last week, that's how they pronounce hiatus in France. Oh, uh, is it? We are resuming talking about this extremely long book that Michael is holding in his hands, and his hands are trembling with the effort of supporting it against the pull of gravity it's of human bondage by mm-hmm. somerset mom mm-hmm. you notice yep. how i got the oedipal thing there right at the top you, you by calling did. him mom yeah um, did. very good it was a freudian nipple <laughs> a slip a freudian slip um yep <laughs> <laughs> man i thought you were gonna like run with that and then nope. i just no, you, it, there's it enough there you... for the, the listener to, to do with it what they will. <laughs> uh, and they will do with it what they will. Listen, if they pledge high enough on Patreon, listeners can do whatever they will with my nipples. Anyway. <laughs> um... <laughs> you hear it here first. <laughs> there is a tear. And also, that is... it's a secret tear. Secret tear. <laughs> we do have a joke $1,000 tear. And this is a secret tier higher than that. Yep. Um, anyway. Wow. So well, now that we've guaranteed that we will never have any listeners again. Yeah, I was going to say, now that every single one has shut off their, opened their Walkman, taken out their podcast CD, mm. and just shattered it against a wall. Hey, we've gone two episodes, and maybe three if I didn't do it in the special episode. Without me saying anything about a podcast tape or CD. I know. It's pretty good. It is. You have to admit. I'll take what I can get. You literally have to. Uh, But do I? Maybe I want to be free. Well, you can't. You're in bondage. Oh. You're of human bondaged. I know. Oh, man. Would that be a good investment? Can I get these by the way? (laughs) Would that be a good name for an investment firm? Of human bondage. <laughs> wow. Uh, believe it or not, gentle listener, this is not the green room to Bob's Burgers. Oh, man. Um, yeah. So. What are we drinking? We are drinking, because <laughs> we need to be after all of that. Yep. Uh, we are drinking Lagavulin Isla Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, aged 16 years in barrels. <laughs> uh, yep. I was just noticing the quote on the bottom of the actual bottle. Uh, a couple episodes ago, I read some of the copy from the box that the bottle came in, but um, quote on the bottom of the bottle, all caps, The Strange Horse of Sunaval, that's my best Scots pronunciation, uh, uh-huh. by William Black. And I'm reading this as it is transliterated in sort of a Scots dialect, so it's not my fault, it's the letters. <laughs> I have been in Isla more as three times or two times myself, and I have been close to the Lagavulin distillery, and I know that it is the clear water of the spring that will make the Lagavulin whiskey just as fine 
as new milk. Wow. That is the quote on the bottom of, of this bottle. Um, at first, I thought it was trying to be poetry, and I was like, that's some real William McGonagall stuff going on. <laughs> but no, it's apparently just like a, a like 18th century in, like blurb endorsement. Right, right. Like, you didn't think that was, that was a thing that far back, but, but here we it are, is. So, that's, uh, that's what we're drinking. We have, yep. uh, done our, this has been our scotch fetish moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The rest of it will also be us fetishizing, especially this particular scotch, but silently. Silently. So that we don't lose. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and that said, Karen, how do we lose? Rule one, once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two, no one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three, Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four, Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule five, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number six, the wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number seven, if four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. Thank you, Karen. Oh, that makes sense. That's a lot of ways to lose, and as we mentioned a few episodes ago with the inauguration of season two, with our, uh, season four, rather. season four. I can count. Wow. Uh, with, uh, we've we've introduced these couple of new rules, so, Mm -hmm. if no one loses this episode... We both and lose. no one loses before the like end cap of next episode. Then we both lose. Then we both lose. Yep. So Michael, I'm gonna say that as the guest, it's your responsibility to throw yourself on this grenade and, uh, and then take a loss. Throw it back episode. at you. <laughs> no, you've been trying to do that, and I've cleverly avoided your traps, oh. including the ones you didn't say out loud and just let me kind of ramble my way towards the edge of. At this point, I'm just waiting for you to trap yourself. I mean, dang it. I keep not recording the, the bottle actually opening, Come and that's on. the most pleasing part of the sound. You're cheating our listeners. There you go. Thank you. Which is different from cheating on our listeners, which I would definitely do if I got a higher-paying podcast, but here we are. <laughs> you want a topper? Yeah. I also will have a topper. And the rules, of course, go into effect once we clink these berry glasses. Mm-hmm. Roast. Schlank. I feel like Schlank actually is kind of a good salute. Yeah. Like, it sort of goes around the bend of badness and back into being good <laughs> because it's, like, almost onomatopoeic. Yeah. It sounds like the sound of glasses clinking. Wait, is that what Slancha is? Whoa. Probably not. But... Probably not. <laughs> but on the other hand, envision, like, a whole, like, table full of glasses clinking. Mm-hmm. Like, that could almost be a... It's probably not. Probably not. But it could. But, but it could be. It could be. Like, anyway, this is not Irish etymological speculations with no. Michael and Ethan. Um, what is this? I was about to ask you that! <laughs> uh, it's like the gift of the Magi of traps. Ugh. <laughs> 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 It's like, I dug a pit for you. Well, I laid a tree snare for you. Aww. And the the tree snare is, like, on the the pit trap. On the pit. Yeah, I don't know. So you fall into the pit, but the snare has caught you and lifts you back out. (laughs) Yes. 
Oh my gosh, what a stupid show. <laughs> anyway, I, did I already say the book we're reading? You, you did, but say it again for good measure. It's of human bondage, which Michael has bound me to read yep. and then talk about for four hours. Yep. <laughs> and he's very pleased with himself right I now. Am. I am very pleased. All right. Yes. So... We spent a lot of last episode talking about the, uh, I wanted to make a, yeah, I wanted to make a C.S. Lewis reference and call it the four loves, but it's like the six loves and most of them aren't real loves. Right. Um, but, so, there's another sort of very important aspect of this book that may not be about the thing that it seems to be about, and that's. Uh, the tracing of Philip's sort of intellectual development. Mm-hmm. So, uh, having just completed the master class in interviewing with Terry Gross, I'm going to ask you, Michael, what about that? <laughs> yeah, very good. Um, yeah, well, we, we talked a little bit about how he goes to Germany and then to France yeah. for some of his education, and then he winds up in London also. Um, but, uh, in Germany, he mostly spends his time just kind of learning German. Right. Getting cultured, and then winds up after that, uh, seeing that he has an appreciation or an eye for art and drawing, and that's when he goes to France to be an art student. Yes. Um, and that's maybe the most significant part of his intellectual development, at least in his early life. Um... It comes up later numerous times that he sees things like an artist. Even right. when he goes into the medical profession, he's looking at people like an artist looks at people um, and their illnesses and things, so that he can find beauty even in the the most disfiguring ailments. Sure. Um, which I, I, I kind of thought about mentioning that too when we were talking about the loves and the, the women and how he sees their ugliness. Sure. But... To him as an artist, the ugliness isn't necessarily something that disgusts. Right. Um, It's just something that's interesting. Right. Because he's an artist. Yeah. I was trying to find a passage in this book that, of course, I'm not finding. Um, Hmm. But, once again, I think the things that he thinks he is studying the things that he thinks yep. he's learning are not the things that he's actually learning sure um i think he learns a lot more about painting which i think is is sort of related to what you just said once he actually stops studying painting and yep. goes back and tries to be a doctor yep um and that's not to say he becomes a successful painter no but he figures out what it is that painting was actually teaching him right um, yeah. And I think when he is painting, he sort of maybe figures out what German was actually teaching him. Okay. Um, but I'm not sure what that was. Just conversation with people? Yeah, like maybe he um, was he was learning sort of how to learn in a, in a community, in a less structured uh, environment. Because sure. um, he spends a lot of his... I, I think it's ironic he spends a lot of his time in Germany, which, if you're sort of classifying nations of Europe in very sort of reductive and cliched ways, Germany is like your your intellectual center, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, Germany and Austria, you know, you have all the great intellectual composers, you have mm-hmm. your Goethe, you have um, your even your, you know, Freuds and your Jungs, yep. and all of those guys. And he spends a lot of his time in Heidelberg focused on his love life. Gotcha. Um, and I feel like once he goes to Paris is once he's actually, he actually has a lot of these deep thoughts and these discussions about art. It's, it becomes sure. much more intellectual. Um, some of his discussions with Cronshaw and yep. some of, some of the other, uh, characters that you meet there. Yeah. Um, I don't know, it, it at, at random sort of reminds me of any given semester in college, I remember feeling like 90% of my mental energy 
was not spent on the things I was learning. Hmm. Um, and that, you know, at least not spent on the explicit, like, whatever, four to six classes I had signed up for any given semester. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of it, more than I'd like to admit, was spent on, like, interpersonal drama or mm. romantic stuff, but also, like, even doing theater, you know, you end up pouring mm. a lot of time into that. Um, yeah. And I don't know where I'm going with this, but... You no, know, but, like, you get the picture, especially in France, of his sort of bohemian life. Um, yeah. That is... That it, it's not the study, it's not the art, it's him interacting with other young people and going to the cafe with them and drinking coffee or absinthe yeah. and uh, yeah some of some of the uh did you ever have to read the sorrows of young werther no i didn't either but i suspect that some of the germany stuff it feels goethe-ish Okay. Um, it feels very, or even like Thomas Mann a little bit. Ah. Thomas Mann probably is how you actually mm. say that, I would guess. Um, it's this very like romance-focused experience of of Germany. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of some of the passages with uh, um, Miss Wilkinson, which are sort of related to the French thing because she's heavily influenced by the French and yeah, so forth. Um, those feel like a book I have read to me, which is Madame Bovary. Mm. Um, have you read Madame Bovary? Yep. Uh, so then as you know, like Madame Bovary, of course, is an older woman who keeps having like affairs yep. with these younger men. And it almost felt like Madame Bovary, I think was meant to be a little bit of a reversal of your normal, like buildings Roman, like your, your young man who yeah. has a coming of age. And this is almost feels like a reversal back, like what it, Philip goes through what it would feel like to be one of Madame Bovary's young yeah. men. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, well, and I think um, in in France uh, that there was explicit mention of La Boheme yes. with uh, Mimi and, and all that, and, you know, so this tragic death of the, the young woman amongst the bohemian artist men, and, yeah. you know, Fanny Price kind of fits that bill. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, yeah, once, like, after, after Fanny Price, you know, uh, kills herself, yep. looking back at some of those La Boheme references, I was like, yeah, I should have, should have seen that coming, yep. yeah. No, it's, it's pretty, yeah. But, um, yes, yeah, so, uh, that, that, um, I, I don't know what more to, to draw from that, except that it seems like the, the literary references are brought out to... His experiences? Yeah. I feel like... I it, I don't know. They're almost something I do feel like I would have to do a second read uh -huh. with some theories in mind to know for sure what I thought yeah. about them. Yeah. But talking about the, the intellectual developments and stuff, that what, what a lot of that does is set the stage for his later life. And we mentioned, like, his... Yeah. Uh, the, the art playing a part in his his life as a as a doctor it, it fits into when he's in in poverty too yeah. um you know he he finds use for the art in drawing designs for for fashion for the sure. shop that he works in um, it, it occurs to me and i don't know this could just be me and not like what am i trying to say this could this could just be me me focusing on different things as i read and not actually something that's in there but it seems like though i was noticing those references personally um a lot less in the back half of the book than the front half um mm. that i was you know that uh, it seemed like the 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 first the first half or so of the book um was sort of built out of very conscious precursors in a way that that the final half of the book didn't really do um and it does make me wonder if there's something there about like philip sort of developing um actually developing his own personality uh later on hmm. as opposed to 
thinking he had developed his own personality, but actually living in sort of imitation of other people. Hmm. That, that, that'd be interesting to, to look into because he, he does, you know, we were talking uh, last episode about how the, the freedom that he's looking for from his bondage is sort of uh, breaking from the mold of other people's expectations. Yeah. Um, and so it just emphasizes that bondage even more. Sure. Perhaps. Um, part of that, that too, the, the, um, the way a lot of what happens to him earlier lays the foundation for what comes later. Um, his friend Athelney at the end, um, remarks something similar to what Cronshaw mentioned too, that, uh, the, the morality of Christianity is something that traps him and, uh, yeah. and, 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 um, he, he can't help but, but be part of that morality and Athelney is is called by his own wife an atheist uh while while the the wife and kids go off to church Athelney stays around and, and chats with Philip right um but he says you know it's good for them to go to church and and stuff he wants them to go to church uh sure. and he wants them to be religious he doesn't care about it for himself but sure uh, but then he he remarks too that um that that experience of the the Christian religion provides a framework for morality that you can't escape when you're older. And Philip is like, well, no, I can have morality without Christianity, but he can't actually defend that. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, and you know, he, he's, tr it's even pointed out that Athelney, who's this chatterbox kind of guy is talking and talking and talking. And Philip is trying to think of a response to that. But by the time he's got maybe half of one, Athelney is onto a new subject. Right. Uh, and so he can never actually, defend his own viewpoint that no you can have morality without christianity at all um yeah and even if he did come up with something his own experience would be an argument against it right because any any way that he could come up with to defend morality apart from christianity he's coming from a place of coming out of christianity so right, right. trapped with that the the point i guess i'm i'm bringing up here is that his past has defined him and, and does create who he is and creates the bondage. His own experiences are part of his bondage. Right. Yeah. No, that's all, uh, that's all very good. Uh, but also was... part of his, um, his ultimate freedom question mark. Yeah. Um, because, uh, he, he comes at the end when he's, um, fallen in love with Sally, even though he doesn't admit that it's actually love. Right. Um, he, he comes to see what he could almost call a purpose for suffering. Um, right. He, he, he could even come to see a purpose for his club foot. Uh, right. And for all the experiences that he has gone through, where it's almost a resolution of all of those things. It doesn't actually come quite to that, but he almost sees how all of his experience have fed into this resolution. Right. Um, which, you know, that makes this book kind of, it's a wonderful life. Um, right. <laughs> minus the, the supernatural experience. Right. But, um, the, you know, tracing him from his youth through his entire life up until... You know, he, he wants to travel and is trapped and this, that, and the other way. And, right. But um, what makes it different from It's a Wonderful Life is a lot of the trap is his own making. He just decides these things. Right. Um, there's less of it from the outside, and the bondage frequently comes from the inside. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I was I was looking at the end, and I had underlined a, yeah. um, just about a page off from the end. He realized that he had deceived himself. Hmm. It was no self-sacrifice that had driven him to think of marrying, but the desire for a wife and a home and and love. Yeah. Um. So that that almost uh, uh, represents a, a hundred and eighty degree turn. Yeah. Um. To where he he he's no longer de defining himself by what he isn't or what he doesn't want to be. Mm -hmm. Um, he has these positive desires, yeah. positive in, in the sense that they're, they're additional and not subtractive. Um, yeah. But when he comes to these positive desires, they're the most like, uh, conventional, like uh -huh. almost cliched 
things that they uh-huh. could possibly be. Ironically, just yeah, it's it's just what what he would have in his youth called bondage. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, he's found that that sort of the the escape from bondage is a uh, uh, almost as much is or a bondage not, itself. Yeah, more than a bondage itself. It actually, I just happened to flip past a a margin note I made much earlier, um, one ninety one in in mine, chapter forty. Um, when he first gets to the the painting studio in Paris, um, that he's been sort of he's been set up to go to, or he's arranged for himself to go to, and uh, they're they're introducing him to the to the sort of painting like boarding school or whatever that he's gonna gonna live at, and the the room that they're introducing him to, at the window were the same sort of white lace curtains. With Aunt, which Aunt Louisa put up at the vicarage in summer. <laughs> Piano was draped in Liberty silk, and so was the chimney piece. Uh, and the, the person showing him around says, In the evening when we closed the shutters, one might really feel one was in England. I remember that bit, yeah. Um, oh, and then she, another of the, the caretakers there says, And we have our meals just as if we were at home. Yep. So he hasn't escaped English cooking or English decoration, and he's escaped England to this place in France where everyone uh, running the establishment, at least, wishes that they were, in fact, in England. Yep, yep. And tries to make it as much so. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that in connection with the resolution of the book either, but, yeah, no, that's, that's, um, yeah, just, he, every move he makes throughout the book is to escape something. Yeah. Um, the, he, he's reproached by his uncle at one point, a rolling stone gathers no moss. Right. Uh, and I, that's something that Philip wants. He doesn't want the moss. Right. Because that is the bondage. He wants to keep right. rolling. That's right. the freedom. But then he comes to, to realize that, no, if he's just rolling, he is just bound to keep rolling. Right. Um, and he does lose something that way. Yeah. It's almost as though he is looking for experience to be infinite when the nature of experience is finite. You cannot have everything because if you have one thing, then by definition you do not have another. Right, exactly. Um, if you live in one place, you, by definition, are not living in any other place. Exactly, yeah. Um, they used to, when I, when I was younger and had some dreams that could be summarized as basically being an 18th century pirate. Um, <laughs> the the one thing that used to, to bother me as a kid about that idea is it was like, okay, you go to one place and you live there for a while. Like, basically the idea that in order to have lived a whole bunch of places, you could never live for very long in any single place. Sure. Like, I, I always remember wanting both to have lived in a bunch of places and to have, like, put down roots in all of those yep. places. So it's like I wanted to live in, say, five different places for, like, mm-hmm. 10 to 20 years apiece, which yeah. the more places like that that you add, the less that the math adds up. The idea of then where do you call home. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, that's, yeah, that, that's something quite fascinating about his experiences, too. And I think there is kind of a point at which... You as the reader don't necessarily know where home for Philip is, and he wouldn't right. necessarily be able to answer that himself either. Right. Um, and even by the end, it's not totally clear. Um, like, he does move to the South um, with Dr. South, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is a fun fun little thing. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and with Sally and, and everything, so that, that he's, he's creating that as home, but... For a while, it, it's um, Black Stable is kind of the anchor that draws him back, but then as soon as he goes there, it's just a bounce somewhere else. Right. Um, and it's it's really more of a default yeah. anchor from circumstance than yep. anywhere he wants to be. Right. Right. It's it, and, and I think that partially also feeds into his personality as someone who thinks of himself as different from everyone else. Sure thinks his experiences are unique and uh, no one can understand him and he can't understand anybody else right. either. 
It's a very it's a very teenager kind mm-hmm. of a mm-hmm. a mentality. Yep, which continues much later into life. Um, right, which is not un unrealistic. No, like there are plenty of people who I think get to about sixteen and figure that they're done developing. Sure. You know, I I've known plenty of people in their thirties or even older who they 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 grow up and they learn to say it in more more subtle, more sophisticated sounding ways, but essentially their mentality is is I am so unique that no one understands me. Yep. Yeah. One thing I noted on the very last page, um, some of some of Philip and Sally's dialogue, uh, literally drawing down to the very end of the novel. Um, yeah. I want to see if you if you recognize this, or if you if you recognize where in the book we've heard this before oh, okay. specifically. Which so the the line I'm drawn to, uh, so he says, "I don't want to leave you. I can't leave you." Which is that what mm-hmm. we were talking about. Maybe last episode about how at first he thinks he just has to be with her because yep. of the the whole baby thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he real even when that excuse goes away, he realizes maybe it was just an excuse and this is what he wants. Um, so he says she did not answer. He could not tell what she thought. Mm-hmm. Tying in with the, what you yep. you just said you were just saying just now. Um, he says I wonder if you'll marry me, Sally. She did not move, and there was no flicker of emotion on her face, but she did not look at him when she answered, If you like. Uh-huh. Don't you want to? Oh, of course, I'd like to have a house of my own, and it's about time I was settling down. Hmm. Do you recognize that dialogue? Uh, From anywhere else? Not immediately, I guess. In this specific book? Mm, not that I know of. I'm going to try to find it quick. Okay. And as I'm saying the sentence and like uh, buying myself time, I'm already a hundred percent sure that I am not going to find it. Of course. Uh, let's see. Can I do it? I probably can't do it. <laughs> uh, nope. I'm giving up. Anyway, uh, Mildred and Philip have a very similar conversation. Okay. Um, in fact, Mildred's, like, refrain that gets repeated is, if you like. Okay. And to Philip, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. drives him crazy yep. because of the the uh, uh, tension or whatever that you outlined last episode um, where he loves Mildred and she doesn't mm-hmm. love him. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think I think we've done enough groundwork here for me to be able to say maybe the opposite of both of those statements is true, um, mm-hmm. but these two people really can't understand each other. Yep. It occurs to me you could probably do a master's or even PhD thesis about communication and miscommunication in this book. Oh sure. Um, yeah, that'd be fascinating. Right. But I believe even when when he first asks Mildred out, he's sort of like wheedling his way into uh what what he wants is for her to want the same thing. Yes. He 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 doesn't want her to acquiesce to the actions, he wants her to acquiesce to the emotion, uh yes. to the passion, to the desire. Um and by the end, I think he has matured enough to the point where he can let Sally want what she wants, and they can coexist because the actions wind up corresponding. I think there's maybe even a deeper element to that, because, sure. again, I'm trying desperately to find like some of his first conversations with uh, uh, Mildred, and of course I'm failing. Okay, well... Even, uh, so I guess I'm in chapter 58 here. So, Philip's hassling Mildred about one of her other male callers, right? Mm-hmm. Is he in love with you? You'd better ask him, she said with a laugh. I don't know what's it, what it's got to do with you, if he is. A bitter answer leaped to his tongue, but he was learning self-restraint. Mm-hmm. Um, which was not one of the places that in the margin I just wrote, HA, in all caps, but uh-huh, it should have been. Uh-huh, yeah. I wonder why you say things like that, was all he permitted himself to say. 
She looked at him with those indifferent eyes of hers. It looks as if you didn't set much store on me, he added. Why should I? No reason at all. He reached over for his paper. You are quick-tempered, she, she said when she saw the gesture. Gesture, You do take offense easily. Mm -hmm. So, I think, um, I don't know if that demonstrates it or not, but, like, uh, uh, when, oh, okay, here at the end of, uh, 56, um, he finally sort of badgers her into, um, agreeing to come to a play with him. Oh, yes. And he says, I'll get a couple of stalls, which, of course, were, like, the expensive seats at the play, the good yeah, ones. Yeah. He added that last sentence in order to tempt her. He knew that when girls went to the play, it was either in the pit, or if some man took them, so sold them to more expensive seats than the upper circle, both cheaper, obviously, than mm -hmm. the stalls. I don't mind, she said. Um, yep. When will you come? I, I get off mind. early on Thursdays. So it's that throughout his relationship to Mildred and the later dialogue that I read slightly earlier than the one I just read um, shows Philip's the beginning of Philip's reaction to it and I think even later on as their relationship progresses and um, I think it's fair to say worsens yeah um, you know he gets he gets even angrier at some of her reactions along yeah those lines. Mm -hmm. um, and he uh, uh, that that indifference um, that Mildred shows, like you say, from Philip's perspective, I agree with what you said a few minutes ago. Yeah. From his perspective, it is him wanting her to want what he wants and to show that in yep. a straightforward way. But from her perspective, as someone who mm -hmm. um, is clearly fairly attractive, um, Philip is an unreliable third-person narrator. Uh -huh. Shout out to you, Nat. Um, <laughs> Nat and I have an ongoing dialogue about unreliable narrators that probably will appear in a in a listener special at some point. There you go. Some of it, but anyway, um, you know the to be more more fair and precise, the third person narrator reporting Philip's unreliable thoughts. It's impossible to tell exactly how attractive Mildred is, right. but she's at least. Attractive enough to have through his perception, but she's yeah. attractive enough to have at least one other serious male suitor. Yep, um, and, and a few others. Yeah, presumably, you know, and I mean, she's a waitress. Like she seems to get hit on a lot. Right. You know, um, which, by the way, Philip's whole uh, asking her out in pursuit of her is a textbook case of never hit on someone in a service position. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. that's a cracked after-hours digression. We don't need to get into her here. <laughs> but anyway, I think from her perspective, her way of seeing just what Philip wants or how far Philip is willing to go is by this feigned indifference. Mm -hmm. She, as someone who is both desirable and has probably been, you know abused to one extent or another yep. not necessarily a you know physical or sexual abuse but sure you know has been taken on dates and then when she wouldn't put out immediately like has been mm -hmm. left or whatever like she's clearly the type of person who's had that sort of experience so her defense mechanism is to be as indifferent as she possibly can while give just barely giving him what he wants right in order to see how, you know, how willing he is to pursue her and how much he... How much he'll give her... Yeah, and even how much he's willing to put up with in the pursuit of her. Yeah. Um, so her indifference is actually telling him a lot, yeah. potentially, if he could only see it. Sure. But the whole point of his character at this point in the novel and when he asks her out, it's like roughly halfway through. Yep. The whole point of his character is that he can't see that. No. He's so far inside his own head that uh, what she's doing really, you know, as a as a woman of a lower class who in a lot of many, many ways is very vulnerable. Yep. He can't see that she's that this is a defense mechanism. Right. And, you know, part of I think, his, you know, of course, she does some some unequivocally horrible things to him especially sure. later on but part of his 
his part of the relationship going as disastrously, disastrously as it does has to do with him expecting her to communicate in his method and not being at all willing to communicate yeah. in her method. And that's really demonstrated, I think, uh, especially when we switch to that one chapter from her perspective. And I forget yeah. which chapter it is. But it's when she is looking at Philip, and we kind of get how he is perceived a little more. Right. Um, and and that, that itself is just interesting. We get hints now and again when um, he's kind of shocked and, and startled when he hears how people have talked about him to other people. And he's like, yeah. oh, that's how people think of me. Interesting. And, um, but then we actually see him through her eyes, um, and she is thought of him as someone she can manipulate and, and, right. and get what she needs and wants out of him. Uh, but then all of a sudden he's changed and he's not doing what um, she expected him to, which just shows again that no single human being can actually comprehend everything about any other human being. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, that frustrates her then too. Yeah. I wish you could remember which chapter that was because yeah. I think I buzzed through it and I okay. kind of wish I could, like, like I kind of want to go back and reread that specific chapter. Because that's an interesting, going back, like, I don't like biographical readings of novels sure. as a rule, even though I do feel like I do it to some extent with every single book we do and I uh -huh. always give this disclaimer. But with this book, I mean, I feel like it's, much fairer than it is with a lot of books because mom explicitly in mm -hmm. this forward you know he's called it semi-autobiographical he calls it an autobiographical novel yeah mm -hmm. which he says that the novel part is very important it's not yep. pure autobiography but um if it is mom tr like trying like if, if this is based on a real relationship which it being such a huge part of the book, you almost have to assume that it is. Yeah. Um, the idea that Mom is trying with this, especially with this one in particular, to go into the head of the other person, um, mm -hmm. I think maybe tells you at least where the Mom character, which is obviously different from the Philip character, but it tells you where he ended up. Yeah, um, and I think it'd be interesting to analyze that uh, how sort of how successful we thought he was in getting into Mildred's head. Is she just a two-dimensional character in that point of view chapter? Yeah. Yeah. Like I say, I think I just I think I was just in in a get through it mode by the time mm -hmm. I I uh, sure. Sure. Got there, and I don't think I well, paid as much attention to it. Well, that is a later chapter, to too. Yeah, that's, but, that's why I think I was probably um, in that mode, to be honest. Yeah. But, no, I, and oh. I, I don't know if she's just two-dimensional or not. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a, that I think is a valid question to ask of pretty much all of the female characters in yeah. this novel. Mm -hmm. um, and you could argue, even if they are, that this is sort of a, a Hamlet novel where you have, you know, a... Bloom says that Hamlet is basically a three-dimensional character in a two-dimensional world. Sure. And that maybe the nature of an autobiographical novel almost forces characters into two-dimensionality. Sure. Well, because how we how we see the other characters is through his perception. And so yeah, they're exactly. going to be less developed than he is. Exactly. Which is maybe part of the point of the novel itself. Part of the the bondage that it's bringing to light is, you know, we're bound to perceive the other in a way that is more limited than we perceive ourselves. Right, and, yeah. And then the natural proclivity to make the self more important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but a uh, few digressions ago, I think we started this conversation because I was comparing the last page of the novel yeah. to what I now know is... At least in my in my edition, I was thinking of page two hundred ninety nine, the very end of chapter fifty six, um, and which, which sets up a through line when Philip essentially says, "Hey, you want to go out with me? I really like you, and also I'll get you the best seats to this great play." And Mildred's like, "All right, nope." Um, 
and the fact that again that indifference on Mildred's part becomes one of at least symbolically or in sort of a shorthand way becomes the lodestone of the the uh, disastrous nature of their relationship yeah the the seeds of the discontent and... yeah um but by the end uh we have this this uh dialogue that i quoted a little while ago i wonder if you'll marry me sally if you like mm-hmm. which is again if you like i don't mind both very flippant on the face of them both very uh mm-hmm. sort of uh, you know casting it back on him but and i i'm going to just read oh okay well so i'll read one line farther than i did before if you like don't you want to oh of course i'd like to have a house of my own and it's about time i was settling down mm-hmm. um which again is a very on on the surface it's a very mildred-esque kind of response a it's what i can get out of this transaction right and b it's it's still essentially if you like right like i'll make the best of it if this is what you want and it's also like i'll it it doesn't have to be you (laughs) yeah exactly um but then one one line one short paragraph further than that is i think key and i think in a sense almost and this is very arguable almost could be the climax of the novel, he smiled a little. He knew her pretty well by now, and her manner did not surprise him. Yes, he, he yeah, that, that aspect that he knows her. Yes. Um, and that, I think, implies that he's bridged the gap that I was talking about him not even knowing was a gap with Mildred. Um, yeah. I think he understands that there is more than the surface level to communication now. Yes. Um, and that because of just who Sally is as a person, maybe she just wouldn't give that, like, effusive, enthusiastic response. Right. Um, that Philip, if he got to control matters, you know, would uh, would like from her. Yeah, yeah. Um, instead, she's she she just sort of responds this way because of who she is as a person her nature yeah yeah he's learning to see that other people have their own experiences and in many ways they can be similar to his but also in many ways they are going to be different yeah and that that you know that comes right after um chapter two where he um right it's like the second to last chapter or something where Mm -hmm. he does have this this revelation about suffering in the world and how that does the by looking at suffering that draws people together. Sure. Um, which is one of the purposes of suffering that's part of his last epiphany in the novel. Um, sure. But then that chapter itself, I think, concludes with a quote from uh, uh, of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they right. do. Which is a fascinating thing for him to be thinking about at that point. I, and I think, if I remember right, the, the, it comes kind of unbidden to his mind. Right. That quotation. Which, again, shows that he's he's got this foundation in Christianity that it has not easily left him. But then that that idea of it, it, it's it's the God who is suffering and dying who says forgive them. He's right. he's in the midst of the suffering of other suffering people. Right. Uh, and so he, as Philip, also sees the suffering of others and says i'm suffering too and so i can understand you we can understand each other and right. we have now a foundation for it. we're we're not isolated anymore we're not apart but we are all humans bound in the same thing right the i uh uh about a page earlier than the end of that that second to last chapter mm-hmm. um basically the beginning of the the second to last paragraph or in other words, the last paragraph, other than that direct biblical quote, uh-huh. last long paragraph, his wedding present to his wife would be all his high hopes. Self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Philip was uplifted by his by its beauty, and all through the evening he thought of it. I just underlined those sentences in, in the margins I wrote, suspiciously Christian. Yep, yep. For someone who, like, 400 plus pages earlier has declared himself an atheist. Yep. Um, and then I did, I did actually underline 
um, before the quote, forgive them for they know not what they do, uh-huh. um, I actually underlined the introduction to that quote. Okay. The last sentence, the last sentence of the paragraph, whose first sentence I just quoted. The words of the dying God crossed mm-hmm. his memory. Mm-hmm. Two things. Word cross is right there in that sentence. Oh, man. Yeah, it is. <laughs> nice. Right? Uh, number two, I, it's actually a really interesting way to introduce that quote, the words of the dying the words God. The of the dying God, yep. Um, because as, as Mom surely know, knew and Philip would have known, it, this is, this is directly, um, and I, you know, I don't want to make too much of this. This could just be Philip sort of understanding Christianity without believing it or acquiescing to it, but it is directly on one side of the most major intellectual divide in Western civilization. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the, the whole, the Greeks versus the Hebrews, essentially. Sure. Um, that we have this, this Greek tradition that um, you know, comes out of Plato, and we have this this Hebraic tradition that, you know, t- to use a similar synecdoche, comes comes out of Moses, comes mm-hmm. from the book of Moses, books of Moses, um, and is elaborated on by by uh, the New Testament. Um, and in the Greek tradition, you know, we have it's it's been flirted with and used a lot in in the Christian tradition because it's philosophically useful in a lot of ways but aristotle for example argues for what you might call a philosopher's god that he argues his way into the idea that there has to be one prime source for all of existence but anytime that that idea comes up in greek philosophy inherent in it is the idea that there is an unbridgeable gap between Yes. People, mortals, um, people like us who are um, inherently limited, inherently mortal, versus something that could be the fountain source of all sure. existence. And that that gap is inherently unbridgeable because of all of the rules of logic, essentially. Right. And to vastly oversimplify the, the Christian tradition... And even even you this you know you could say this is in the in the Jewish tradition pre and pre Christianity and outside of Christianity even the answer to that is almost yes but he did yep mm-hmm. um you know the 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 quote from it's one of Paul's letters the, the that this is a foolishness to the Greeks oh yeah mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. specifically yeah. What what is the full? Uh, the the message of the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. Uh, it, it it is. Um, we we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to the Greeks. Okay, yes. Um, so foolishness to Greeks specifically references the idea that Christians preach that God died, yep. and Greeks would say that that is completely impossible. Um, so for Philip to to specifically not just quote Christ in this sort of sort of a oh he was a real good example or he was a real good teacher way but to specify he was the dying god Mm -hmm. um is almost him sunk in a deeper understanding of christianity than many people would have today and based on my reading of gk chesterton from right around the time that this book was published probably a deeper understanding of of the the biblical idea of christ than a lot of people had at that his time, time. Um, sure so again you know i don't i don't want to try to claim mom too much for like my own tradition without sure being able to back that up um much more carefully than i could at this time no but but it is part of it points up that ambiguity yeah that idea that philip ends up making a lot of very uh, moral choices, very um, uh, uh, sort of good choices, depending on that very debatable word good, yep. um, without being a Christian, without, you know, the, the whole good without God mm-hmm. idea. But in order to do it, he, he's, he's sunk so deeply in 
like not just a surface level understanding of Christianity, but like a very depth level understanding of it. Yeah. Um. So again, it's that ambiguity that you said before. Like it's either the atheist's triumph or the atheist's ridicule or mm-hmm. both. Or both. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think it, it if if Mom were here, he would say both. Yeah. Um, that was his intention. Um, yeah, certainly, certainly for the sake of of the yeah. novel, which is. As, right. you know, Kundera uh, has said at length through our mouths on this podcast, <laughs> is an embodiment of ambiguity. Yeah, absolutely. And and especially with it being autobiographical yeah. for him, it's, it's probably a lot of questions that he himself has wrestled with and is now wrestling with through the form of the novel. Yeah. And I do have to, you know, much as I have cast aspersions on this novel low these almost three full episodes now i do have to give him credit for not arriving at a didactic place in his yes. narrative um mm-hmm. you know much much better writers than he have ruined the endings of novels by uh preaching like giving into the temptation stamping a moral right on the end yeah to to preach to stamp a moral on it when it you know that uh almost that's not the purpose of the novel. Yes, and it and it doesn't work in a novel. It, it almost goes back to our probably one major gripe with Bill Holm from the yeah the the uh, Bill Holm special that we did about um, the first essay. <laughs> yeah, I was just trying to remember the name of the first essay in his uh, collection. The Grand Tour. Yeah, the Grand Tour where. He, he spends most of this essay sort of embodying what he wants to say in artistic and ambiguous ways and then spends the last page sort of preaching in a way that that Didn't not need to yeah it was it was unnecessary and it made the essay almost less meaningful than it cheapened it a little. he wanted it to yeah. be let alone anyone else wanting it to be um and again to his credit mom mom resisted the urge to do that here. yeah. Uh, even though people, I think, sunk too far either on, on like a, a sort of fundamentalist Christian side or like a militant atheist side, might read that second to the last mm-hmm. chapter and oh, I could see this being think um, that it was wrong. Read in a or think in that a, it was didactic anyway. In an undergraduate English class and those two camps debating about yeah. what the book is about. Yeah. Well, missing the fact that the fact that there this is a debate is is the point. point. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, Michael. Unless you have anything you'd like to say, no, I don't think I so. I think that is it. Is this four or episode three? This is episode three. Okay. Good. I thought it said four on your. Well, it's the fourth it. episode of season four. Ah, yes, one step ahead of me, as per freaking usual. <laughs> I'm only saying this because you won't remember it tomorrow. No, I won't. Um, for some reason, I'm not I sure why. why. Yeah, I don't understand. Uh, still coherent enough to evade my clever traps. <laughs> so clever they are. <laughs> <laughs> Learned well, you have. <laughs> uh, well, gentle listener, once again, thank you so much for uh, for uh, being here with us, for listening along. Uh, this has been the show that you're listening to. I almost fell into your clever trap that you didn't even say. Uh. Um, so, next time, one more time, we will be reading this book of human bondage. So please, read along. You already read it because we gave you time for it, and I'm still sorry. I don't know how sorry I am anymore. It's an interesting book, I guess. Um, I'll take it. But... Yeah. What do you want? You want the moon? <laughs> Man, I'm mad that that's a better Jimmy Stewart than I do. <laughs> uh, so, please, give us your feedback, uh, whether you do read along or not, or if you rage quit like I was tempted to a few times. Um, <laughs> read along, give us your feedback in the contact section of the Tapestry Radio of tapestryradio.org. Be sure to put Scotch Talk in the subject line. Get us at at Room with Scotch on Twitter. 
I am at Bjartlett on Twitter. That's B-J-A-R-T-L-E-T-T. I'm at Mughalai Lienthal. That's M-G-L-I-L-I-E-N-T-H-A-L on Twitter. You, you don't have to try that hard to make me think you're cool. <laughs> Again, I'm saying this because you won't remember tomorrow. Um, Did you know my name has I lie in it? <laughs> Nabokov would be proud. Uh, so, yeah. You can also join us in the Tapestry Radio Tap House on Facebook. If you request to join, we will let you in. Unless you're either an atheist or a Christian. No, neither of those things are true. Uh, <laughs> we will do only your... Only if you're neither atheist or... Wait. <laughs> also not true. Once again, only if you're a nihilist will we not let you in. Yep. Which is... Anyway, you get the idea. Uh, tabs... Nope, we did that. We will also do your homework. There's a form on the website. Uh, if you enter... Your homework on that form, I think it's pretty self-explanatory. Could be current homework, could be past homework. Hopefully it's current homework, because we do condone plagiarism. You know what? I'm owning it. Yeah. I kept blaming it on you, but I'm going to say I own it too. I condone plagiarism because it will be funny if you turn in our garbage and get an F on your paper and also go to plagiarism jail. Um, mm -hmm. I tried to do like a freeform version of the script, sure. and then I tripped myself up. Um, fell into your own trap. I did, but not that trap. Yeah. Uh, so, if you like this podcast, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network. Shows like Intermission, our audio drama podcast. And Pokemon Rollout, the Pokemon Tabletop United actual play RPG podcast. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we don't pay to advertise. We don't really do anything except make the show <laughs> and share it on Facebook, which I'm actually really bad at remembering to do. Um, but that's how others can learn about us, if you do our sharing so we don't have to. Um, <laughs> we want free labor. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I write a webcomic called Pinporter Girl Detective. Type in Pinporter Girl Detective to Google, it'll get you there. Yep. It's brilliant art and some words by me. Mm -hmm. And anything else from you, Michael? Nope. So, just remember that until next time, we will be crying at our party if we want to. <laughs> yeah!
obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.